Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back to Remap Sports, Sports Adjacent Podcast that sets out to disprove the notion that people with lives dedicated to pixels jumping across the screen can't also be unhealthily interested in what nerds condescendingly refer to as sports ball every Super Bowl. Rob, I start off every episode with a new question from a listener. This one from Andrew. A buddy of mine who's a lifelong Bears fan has decided he's a Lions fan until the McCaskies sell the team. And you would benefit from joining him for a while anyway. They're good and fun to watch. They called a triple flea flicker play immediately after intercepting a pass. They ran a wildcat play that hiked the ball through the quarterback's legs. They converted a fake punt against Kansas City. The defense isn't as inspired as the offense, but did you see that interception that Hutchinson had last week? The coach cries at every press conference. (laughs) The team is having fun. The OC is a madman, and it's unlikely to last past the season because he's going to end up as head coach of the cards or some shit. Join the party while it lasts. Enjoy watching them carve up the NFC North and eventually get pantsed in the playoffs by the 49ers. It's a, it, that's good advice. Like, I think, you know, since we, since we started this podcast uh, back in the Waypoint days, I've always been on that, on that like, uh, I'm a guest fan on the Lions, on the Lions bandwagon, right? I, I think they, they, are a, they are a fun team. They are a team that you can feel good about cheering for because even when they were bad they were bad in ways that indicated that they weren't a complete shambles and that you know they were getting a lot of unlucky breaks but they were they were in there competing no, St- uh, so, yeah, stafford like, plus megatron like who didn't like watching stafford not even throw a good pass just like hey i'm uh, 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 500 did you ever play that when you were a kid you know you just toss the ball up uh, a football in yeah. the air and then you call a number and then you got that point total when you caught it it often felt like during those dysfunctional stafford uh uh calvin johnson era that it was just like 300 and stafford whips it into the air and because megatron was just so huge could just come down with anything that was lobbed anywhere remotely his way yeah, the, those were the, those were fun days. They're, it's a it's a fun team again right now. Uh, I think they're they're easy to root for. Detroit's a Detroit's a great town. Uh, I, I clearly, I haven't seen all these trick plays. I need to go back and watch some watch some of their highlights. Uh, but well, yeah, they they seem to be very very good. Rob, I think you're going to be. So I actually the, my answer to this question would be, why can't I have both? Which is that I have no animosity towards the Lions towards Lions fans. I'm 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 actually rooting for them to have some years of fun so that I can grow that animosity. Like the fun of a rivalry such as the Packers and Bears used to be no longer exists. It's not a rivalry. It's just an older brother kicking the shit out of their younger brother. And uh I would love to learn to loathe 
the Lions. That means the NFC North like has fundamentally shifted and changed. And this whole line that they write here, the team is having fun, the OC is a madman, and it's unlikely to last past the season because he's going to end up as a head coach for the Cards. I present to you, Rob, that you may not know who Ben Johnson is right now, but you will know a lot more about Ben Johnson as the season goes along because head coach for the Cards, no, no, sir, head coach for the Chicago Bears. Ben Johnson Mm. is one of my early favorites as he is a... Matt Nagy, right? Reason you hire him. Oh, he's, he's, he's on the offense. Put him, in, put him in the head coaching role. Worked with the Chiefs. Uh, you know, been around uh, Patrick Mahomes. The key thing that we've seen over and over again, that's part of the logic. The logic that was missing with Nagy was that he'd never called plays. Yeah. You were on the offensive staff. Helped defensive offensive plays. But part of Andy Reid's genius is not just that he's coming up with really clever forms for the plays to, to to play out in but is actually understanding the rhythm of calling plays which i mean a, a defining part of the naggy era of the chicago bears even when they had like competent to great players on offense quarterback aside was just a team unable to get into a rhythm and get out of its own way and so ben johnson come to chicago like we don't have to sell the mccaskies we can just buy you um, I don't know if that'll happen, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm rooting for at the moment. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's something that is worth, worth cheering for, but God, Patrick, what are we hoping for now? Because things have changed. <sighs> so yeah, since we, um, I'm just going to read a list of things that have happened since we last <laughs> recorded a podcast since we last spoke, Rob, at which point I believe the bears were, uh, own two, right? We yes. we recorded after the, the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers game. The Bears have lost their defensive coordinator under still mysterious circumstances and has not been replaced. I don't note it here in our document, but there were like wildly unsubstantiated rumors about what that person, Alan Williamson, may have been involved with that ranged from the truly horrendous to like an HR infraction, and we still don't know. Wide receiver Chase Claypool traded to the Bears from the Steelers last season for a second-round draft pick that turned into the 32nd overall pick in the NFL draft, which might as well be a first-round draft pick, was such a distraction to the Bears and accomplished so little that he was benched and then traded for a late-round pick and is now on the Dolphins. The Chiefs beat the shit out of the Bears publicly and humiliatingly just as the NFL's obsession with Taylor Swift began. The Bears went 28-7 up against the Broncos, a team with a historically bad defense, only to lose in the kind of heartbreaking fashion in which the Bears uh, uh, squandered that entire lead, lost on a field goal, and then led to rumors that their head coach would be fired if they did not win the following game against the Washington Commanders on Thursday night. Justin Fields looks pretty good in that game against uh, the Broncos, and then looks stellar against that game against the Washington Commanders. Uh, the Panthers are 0-5, which means we're en route to a top pick, regardless of what the Bears do. Dip Buckus has died. Rest in peace. And it's just, for a team that is 1-4, Rob, whose vibes have been whatever is the opposite of immaculate, I, 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 I find myself in a very odd place with the Chicago Bears. Where do you find yourself? Also an odd place. Because and and really, I think for me, the the thing I was I've been thinking about since the Bears won that game on Thursday 
which is that it is so much more fun than watching your team be good. And I want to watch a good team for the remainder of this year. Like the problem is they dug themselves a huge hole. Anything they do now feels like it will be kind of meaningless in the context of like what is what is possible this season. But it might end up saving the job of the coaching staff. I have no real like interest in seeing retain their jobs because unless barring some sort of truly miraculous turnaround where it's like, okay, the whole team has matured and things are really clicking uh, and that it would be an historic run they'd have to go on. The way they started the season was disqualifying for your coaching staff. Yep. Uh, And you know, open question as to whether or not how things have unfolded means that you have a decent GM in all of this. So, so I find myself in a weird position where I want them to do well. I want to see them build on what they accomplished there. Also, I am concerned that anything they do from here just kind of screws them because this is an organization very quick to forgive itself and very quick to believe that, oh, you know what? We just need a little more time. We were right all along. We have the pieces in place. Right. I think uh, Matt Yerflus, the head coach of the Bears, has said multiple times over the course of this season as the first quarter of the NFL season draws to a close, oh, we're, we're, we're so close. You know, we just got to put it all together, which is just, you never want to hear that from your coach. You never want to hear that kind of coach speak because it, it presents to you the worst kind of desperate explanation for why your team isn't performing the way that they're supposed to, or the expectations you had set up for the outside world uh, to judge the, the work that you've been doing internally. And yeah, I mean, like, I think this, this letter from, from Ty uh, comes in that kind of encapsulates it. Hey, remappers, with the bears being temporarily back, that's a great way to put it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on when, if ever you support rooting for one's favorite team to lose. I personally am never into it, not just because most NFL fans and executives drastically overrate their team's ability to maximize return on draft capital, but because it just feels wrong to me. If either of you were rooting for the Bears to get the number one overall pick again, are you now sad Fields is playing better? Or are you enjoying this at least for now? Turn of the corner. Thanks, Ty. And I think that scratches at exactly what you're talking about, which is fundamentally, I am for better and frequently for worse, a fan of the Chicago Bears. And I like to watch this team play well. I watched, I showed you, I was watching this game with a, a, uh, a cheap projector set up next to my inflatable hot tub, had a buddy over, we're slamming beers, cheering the Bears, like having just like a grand old time. It's like, this is it. This is living. Like I am watching my team play so well that I'm going to turn away from the TV for a little while and just engage in a conversation. And then when I hear the roar of the crowd, I'm going to turn back over and like, holy shit, did you see what DJ Moore just did? And that felt so like in the context of a one in four team, or I became a one in four team. I don't, I'm, I don't know what to do because in my heart of hearts, when I look at this team, bigger picture, what is this team in five years? Frankly, the best thing that can probably happen to this team is that Fields plays pretty good to establish trade value. Yes. You trade Justin Fields in the offseason to a team that is better built to win right now and use what he's capable of. You get root of Matt Eberflus. You probably 
keep the GM. I think the GM who did not draft Fields, but in many ways has set Fields up structurally to do perform better than they have in the past, or at least to demonstrate their ability to perform better. And you draft a quarterback, whether it's with your pick or if Fields drags you to five, six, seven wins, then it's going to be the Panthers pick who's going to be, they're not going to win more than three games this season. So you may not get Caleb Williams, may not get this all-star talent, but there are three or four other quarterbacks in which they would be dropped into a pretty good situation with a DJ Moore and and like an, an offensive-minded coaching staff. And so that's not how this stuff works, right? Like it's never that clean, but I find myself such at odds because I want to root for the team because that's the whole point of being a fan is is being able to like be excited when your team is performing well and doing what they're supposed to, which is like rewards your patience and investment emotionally with a team that like wears that branding and like has those colors that mean something to you. And there's something about, I think really cursed where like it's too much information. We know you and I know too much about how the sausage is made and what is involved in producing a reliable, competent team. And is it better or worse to be like, sometimes I watch these games in my neighborhood and some people come by and like, they don't really know the structure of like the executive level structure of the bears or like have conversations about roster management. And I'll like explain some of that time and we'll have like conversation and like that goes, they enjoy having that conversation and then they're going to forget it. They're not like, that's not interesting to them. It's just every Sunday did the bears win or lose gives you something to cheer or grunt about. And in some ways, I wish I could go back to such innocent days, Rob, like, because then it makes them winning that game not feel so complicated where it's like, oh, great. Now I'm looking at the other one in four teams um, and wondering what, like being slightly upset that Fields plays as well as he does. And so it's just a it's a crummy place to be. I hate it. I hate it, I guess, is what I'm what I'm driving at. Yeah, I think. uh one of the things that really turned me against the Bears in a lot of ways was when they gave um, Matt Nagy that last year. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that it was just organizational complacency. It was just sheer inertia. And, uh, like, everyone liked each other. Everyone was sort of covering for each other. Nobody wanted to take responsibility for for all that had gone wrong. And they... And and that's an organization that I think to their core they're quick to do. They're they're quick to to say like, well, this is good enough. What more do you want? Like it's, th- things are fine. And meanwhile, you know the product they put on the field week in week out is just they're not a fun team to watch, and they haven't been a fun team to watch for for a number of years since since that one great year with Nagy and Trubisky. And I, I think for me when I when I look at where the team is at right now. Uh, I, like I, I, Fields is such a likable guy, and he wears his heart on his sleeve, and he deserves so much better than to walk into this shit show. That you can't help but hope for him to just go on an absolute tear and prove everyone wrong. I think we've seen enough to suspect that he can't do that. That there that there are some limit limitations to him. Uh, that that will prevent him from having sort of a marquee NFL career. But you still want him to, yes, not just increase that trade value, but sort of get his confidence back and, and be set up to go to a place that can that can take advantage of him. But at the same time... Or fail on his own, own terms, right? Like, I, like, I think the, the history of the Chicago Bears is being 
a factory for failing the players, especially the quarterbacks that come in. And that I think that's what's happened here with Fields is I think you and I have arrived at a place where I think his processing reading of the field is what it is. Um, that's not something yeah. that usually gets better like this far into the, uh, the transition to the NFL. And again, do I think he's do I think he's like the 32nd like like quarterback in the league in the way that sometimes he's been ranked in the last couple of years? No, that is an organizational failure and uh, an infrastructure around him not giving him a chance. But do I think he would broadly sort of like fail to reach the heights that people thought his traits would allow him to to reach? Like, I don't think that's ever going to happen for him. But boy, I can't help but kind of because, like you said, he's likable and he just cares so much about like playing playing well like the way he hung his head after uh he threw that pick uh to end the game against the broncos which was his his fault like you know he anticipated something from his tight end it didn't work out but like that's ultimately on him uh and it's just uh, like that was on him but so many times it's not on him and you kind of wish he would just go somewhere else where it's like hey you know, you're not going to get to Shanahan, right? Like, seems like Brock Purdy's got that, <laughs> got that all locked up. We'll talk about that later. But something like that, where you had an Andy Reid or somebody that could just like, hey, man, we're gonna, we're gonna eat everything we can get out of what you are capable of, and gonna help you hit your ceiling. And that's just not gonna happen. You need here. to find someone willing to adopt a stray, and, and <laughs> be in a position where it's like, oh, you seem, you seem like a good cat. Like, let's let's bring you in here. Let's let's take care of you. And, uh, you know, there, there's there's a home for you here. And there are a lot of teams who I think are hard up enough for for competent quarterback play that might look around and, and see they, they need uh, that. It makes sense to grab fields. But the problem is, if the Bears do well, they might knock themselves out of really strong contention for a great quarterback. Now, the Panthers pick might rescue us there. Uh, but like. Sorry, which which pick of the Panthers do we have? Their first round pick. So yeah, so that could that could that keeps them squarely in the lottery. Yeah, and for, if you look uh, at the um, uh, and the Panthers are already in like hmm, disarray's uh, putting it too uh, uh, too much. But uh, Frank Reich, their coach who came from Indiana, um, he put out he was asked at a press conference um, in the past twenty four hours about ownership. And this like really I'll have to send you the clip um, after we record. But the the it was because he's gone from going uh, from being at the Colts with uh, Jim Ursay, who is a notoriously like public, just a just an, an ugly owner to be associated uh, with. And then goes to the Panthers, which has, I think, Tepper. I forget his first name as is, is the owner of that. And the way he describes it was like, yeah, you know, every week we're in meetings and uh, they don't go really well. But, uh, uh, you know, and this, uh, uh, you know, uh, an owner likes to be really involved. There's definitely like reading through the lines that they didn't pick the quarterback they wanted to pick, that they wanted Mm. C.J. Stroud. They didn't want Bryce Young. And C.J. Stroud is off doing exceptionally well on the Texans right now, which is all to say, if we look up the Panthers schedule, which I did this recently, because this is the the place I'm at as a Bears fan, um, their own five. Um, they have the Dolphins, zero and six. Uh, yeah. they have the Texans, who are playing very well, zero and seven. They have the Colts. Let's say it's probably a toss-up. Probably on eight. They have the Bears. I think we'll probably beat them. So, 
oh and nine that's one's kind of a coin flip if the bears somewhere in there they'll be one and nine by the time they play the bears i think somewhere so we'll see, like yeah give them one after, I, yeah. I think the texans or the colts could go their way they're clearly yeah. gonna lose the dolphins so let's just say through the you know uh, one the bears eight. game uh yeah one and eight cowboys cowboys we're gonna get to but they probably lose that game one and eight or one and nine um the the titans who despite being a flawed team play hard as hell yep. like they're going to lose that game one and ten the Bucs, I have no idea. Let's go ahead and give them that one, right? Like, may- maybe they're going to clean up one of them here. So, 2-10. Two, two and ten. The Saints, I don't, think the Patri- I don't think the Patriots are very good, but the Saints are competent. And so, like, no. they probably lose that. 2-11. and 11. The Falcons? The Falcons might have Kirk Cousins at this point. <laughs> like, they might be trading for something like that. So, it's like 2-12. and 12. The Packers, also we'll get to, don't look that good. But probably they're going to lose that one. 2-13. and 13. The Jaguars, looking great. 2-14. and 14. Uh, and then the Bucks again, you know, they're probably going to win one of those, right? So probably yeah. two and 15. So all of a sudden you look at a team that has won two games. And even if the Bears, let's say how they eke out six, seven wins, right? Like they go on, like if the Vikings end up going into the tank and like those two games suddenly become wins for the Bears, um, you would have a top 10 pick and potentially the one or two overall pick. The Bears would be in a strong position to kind of do whatever they wanted uh, next season, which is the one thing that leans me toward if the Bears, not as they go on a tear, but like just decide to show up and be fun and Fields gets to have what maybe amounts to a farewell season where he gets to show off his talents and kind of advertise himself somewhere else. The nice part about having the Panthers pick is that it removes a little bit of this friction, which is like, yeah, maybe you can just enjoy the bears for what they are and hope that it's good enough for fields that show us a little fun and excitement enough to reveal that the, the at least the coaching staff here is completely dysfunctional and needs to be let go. Yeah. Um, and you still end up with these sort of transformational pick that lets you start from scratch the way that Fields should have gotten when, Yes. He was traded when he was uh, traded for initially by by the Bears. Um, well, because especially we've, we've discussed this on the show before, but uh, the rookie contracts for all players, that is when they're most valuable in terms of like what they can do versus what they are. They're paid to do uh, their their first years in the league. Uh, it's also very exploitative, but let's set that aside. It's just it's it's like part of how teams are constructed. Yep. Uh, the. Bears basically have a five-year timer on on a quarterback like Fields to figure out like where they really come down. Really, it's kind of a four-year timer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you gotta you gotta decide where you're gonna pick up the the option, and also they still have trade value. Uh, you know, at at year four, uh, so the, the Bears like kind of this is kind of the moment where at the end of the season you're already figuring out are you going to commit or are you going to move on. And it feels like he might be coming along to the point where the, the, the place you do not want to be is the Daniel Jones situation, where the Giants were hemming and hawing about what do we do with this quarterback who seems to have some real like potential and some real gifts, but also like things have just not been that good. And then they have this like kind of enchanted ending to the season last year, and they gave him a good contract the kind of contract you give a starting quarterback that you are committing to four years 160 million dollars making him a top 10 quarterback now granted those numbers are skewed. every time a new quarterback 
signs right. a deal, it pushes you down the chart. But it is the it is real commitment. It is saying you're going to be our QB, and and crucially, if the Giants continue on the trajectory that they're on now, which seems more likely than not, in which they are like one of the five worst teams in the league, and they are in position to draft a quarterback. Well, that's great. Maybe you've found a guy who has a higher skill ceiling than Daniel Jones, but you've wiped out all the financial advantages because nobody's going to take Daniel Jones's contract. Yeah. So you can cut him, you can keep him, whatever you want to do, but that, you know, 30 to $40 million you're paying him for a year, those are the cash savings you're supposed to spend on like an expensive pass rush uh, option um, that you won't be able to afford four years from now. Now, I mean, that was a very bad, like the, the Giants front office probably should have, like, I, I understand extending him, but you don't give him that contract, right? This is, this is a situation where it's like, you're a marginal starting quarterback and we can keep you or not, but we are not investing in you in that way. Uh, and, you know, be to his agent to take or leave that maybe, maybe, you know, the, there's greener pastures, but instead they, they decided they really wanted to have, it felt like they were desperate to have an answer at quarterback, even though it was clear to anyone that this was not a clear, this guy did not seem to have, maybe he had turned a corner. There just wasn't enough data about it at this point. And now it increasingly looks like, that man is walking around with a bunch of Saquon Barkley's money in his pocket <laughs> because like so much of like, you know, as is so often the case, uh, sometimes these like really flawed quarterbacks end up having really impressive runs that are in part because defenses are covering possibilities that other players open up, particularly running backs, running backs abilities to just like knock defenses around, uh, put physical wear and tear on them and also just make it harder for them to anticipate what's going to happen. And, and so like you, you don't want the bears to go down that, that uh, you know, that rabbit hole where field shows you enough to think he might be really good. He might also not be. And the Bears pay him as if he's really good. And then you're, you know, now you're now you're in that situation where you're talking about the entire era uh, is is doomed. And any incoming regime will be inheriting uh, a bit like this regime came in, inheriting a lot of bad stuff on the on the. Well, that's what happened with Cutler, right? Like right before they fired. Oh, what's his face? I forget the GM before Ryan Pace. Um, Emery. Yes. Phil Emery. Yeah. Emery handed out a seven year you know, Unreal. extension for, and now granted like the years, I don't think are, you know, that stuff's always kind of a mirage, but it was at least, it was a multi-year huge extension for, for Jay Cutler. Um, and like completely like unneeded, unnecessary, and then just burdened Ryan Pace and spent Ryan Pace then spent two years essentially cleaning up the books on the bears while also trying to navigate the, the Jay Cutler situation. And so that's, that's, that's 100%, which, and but here's the thing, like, like, Look, Jay Cutler's personal, uh, like the kind of person he's turned into aside, like he could sling it. You know what I mean? Like there were real high highs with Jay Cutler during during that era. I don't as fun as been it has been to watch Fields run around. I don't know that I've even seen Fields reach like sort of the floor of what Jay Cutler was p- providing for the Bears at certain points. And so it just makes it like I don't. I'm not going to defend that contract against Cutler. It was it was indefensible, but it would also probably be indefensible to if fields only has a couple of these games this season, are you really going to hand him like a three to four year, like $160 million contract? Right. Like that's also, we need to see him do this against much better defenses yeah. than he has done it. Uh, but I, I will also say 
so much of what has gone on with Fields is that he plays like a guy who is second guessing everything. Yep. And I do wonder if he's a slow processor as he looks, uh, because like just he's being badly coached and and he's not getting he's not getting good looks. The other thing that really has come really has been driven home to me in these past couple weeks. The difference between a DJ Moore and a Darnell Mooney, who was Fields' preferred target his rookie year, uh, they're good friends. They got they got along really really well, and Mooney's a really a really likable receiver. And he seemed like, well, the Bears have the Bears have a good receiver. He's he's solid. He has some good speed, but like he's not a number one in the way that like DJ Moore is. And when you see how much more hooked up it looks when he is throwing to DJ Moore, DJ Moore's ability to just perfectly control the pace of his routes to arrive exactly on schedule where Fields has has fired the ball. It's it's sort of that virtuous cycle thing where, you know, he is he's proving to be a reliable target for Fields. So Fields feels better as a quarterback and more confident flinging it to him. Uh, you know, it's a it's a bit like what Diggs and then um, Jefferson were for Kirk Cousins. Right. Mm-hmm. Where it's like AJ Brown someone for her. Yeah. Yeah, you just you just fire it, and it's probably going to be okay. I mean, look at that last that last that, DJ that last DJ Moore touchdown, um, in which Fields throws a ball that like was kind of uncatchable, like just above the cornerback, and Moore just sort of like grabs it above him, and then turns around and takes it to the house. Like that is just what an elite level top fifteen receiver in the NFL does. That. I love Darnell Mooney too, but he is clearly like a wide receiver three complimentary piece, not a centerpiece of a. If he can be made wide open by uh, Komet and Moore doing their thing, then Mooney's going to be really valuable. But the other thing that um, Moore, and this has really emerged this season, and the reason that you might need to keep him around, uh, you know, no matter what happens with this regime. The degree to which it has been clear that he is one of the only leaders that locker room has has been striking. I don't know if you've if, if you've read the stories, but like when things have been at their most dire and they were it was clearly crisis time from the start of the season. Moore's always had a really circumspect like football season is long. Like I played with a lot of teams, things take time to come together. This is not easy. He, he just is one of those guys who gives off a vibe of like infinite patience for the team around him. And he's been on uh, bad teams it, with bad quarterbacks, right? Like the very uh, Allen yeah. Robinson like arc to the start of his NFL career. Yeah, and so I, I, I think to a degree. You know, you can imagine a lot of star wide receivers. You know, the, the, there's that great tweet about them, right? Which is like the different ways that different position players behave online right that the wide receiver is like the enemy speaks kindly and carries a knife or something uh wide receivers uh do tend to be like confrontational and flamboyant and maybe a little bit conspiratorial this is sort of a a known archetype for for the wideouts for for years more seems kind of like the anti version of that uh very you know excellent excellent receiver uh very no drama and God, this is a team that needed someone who was going to be no drama and not getting uh, completely heated about the lack of offensive production, uh, because this is not this could not have been an easy team to be a receiver for these these first few weeks. 
uh i mean the the epitome of this sometimes like sometimes wide receivers get called a, a diva but sometimes it also means you just get the most colorful personalities like i'm always delighted when there's a new quote from jamar chase um especially as they've had like a really rough start to the season it seems like they might be uh, joe burrow might be his hamstring might be feeling better and they're they're gonna be better off but like <laughs> when they lost in week one of the browns jamar chase said i'm just frustrated because i called their asses elves and we just lost to some elves <laughs> I didn't know what that quote was until I saw that fucking Browns mascot, which I had not seen before. Um, This is an article from Cleveland.com. The best five Jamar Chase quotes from the Bengals 2022 season. Jamar Chase sobbed on the sidelines in Kansas City last year after Evan McPherson hit the game winner in overtime to send the Bengals to the Super Bowl. Chase had tears in his eyes when he walked to the field at Arrowhead Stadium again this year, but there was no joy to be found. The loss hit him hard, and that was on display in the locker room when the normal, normally jovial Chase stood with his back against the locker and had a stoic demeanor while fielding questions. Chase's visual reaction instant response to a question about how he'd handle the loss sums up how much the receiver cares about winning. I don't know, man. I'm not a loser. <laughs> that is great. But that's like like the fun as opposed to the, uh, oh, what was his yeah. name? The the guy was uh, uh, came out of the Steeler, Antonio uh, oh, Brown. Brown. Um, that's the more you know a troubling uh, end of uh, end of all of that. But uh, I do think this point that we're talking about with the Bears, where they find themselves at like various crossroads, um, and, and can kind of pivot us to some like broader talk about the NFL, yeah. uh, especially as it re- relates to the Patriots. We have a, a, a letter from uh, Mike. Hi, sports. For what it's worth, as a Pats fan, I'd be so much happier with the Patriots losing every single game left on the schedule, potentially leading to a Belichick resignation and a top five draft pick been winning six to seven games this year. In 2023's NFL, if you don't have a top 10 quarterback, it's almost impossible to win the Super Bowl. Nick Foles miraculously becoming Tom Brady for a night doesn't happen often. The idea that teams need to ride out the length of a top draft pick's rookie contract seems antiquated. Some more teams opt for the fa- fail-fast route rather than giving quarterbacks two to three years of objectively mediocre play before, before pulling the trigger on a move. Mike. I don't think anybody knows anything. Like that's that's truly my. They sat Aaron Rodgers for so long behind Brett Favre. Yeah, and now you can go back and say, "Boy, that was a mistake. You could have you could have gotten more years of peak peak Aaron Rodgers." I don't know. I don't know what those the, what that what that like period of of learning and and being a backup did for him. Uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes didn't have to come in and play right away. The intention was for him to do that, I think. But um, Alex Smith had like Smith? A, he had a, he had like a historically good. Yeah. Like, Al, the knock on Alex Smith was that he used to be sort of a game manager, like a really good like short balls, intermediate throws, on time, careful with the football. And then that last season that he was the starter in Kansas City under uh, Andy Reid when they draft Patrick Mahomes, he just starts whipping the deep ball like like. Like in a way that his game did not suggest at all, and so there was never an opportunity for Patrick Mahomes to come in because Alex Smith was like for the first time in his career playing at an MVP level, and so Mahomes sat, I believe, until the final game of the season uh, when they were already locked for the playoffs um, and had a like a really strong debut in like that week sixteen game. And like you know, I mean, it's almost impossible to win the Super Bowl without a top ten quarterback. Yeah, but also it's easy to lose a load of games trying to get that top ten quarterback rather than building on what you've got. Like, uh, I think the Niners, you can look at where they are at right now. 
um, they fell backwards into someone who might be a great NFL starter. They didn't draw. That's not how they drew it up. This wasn't <laughs> they, supposed to be how it goes. They traded three, they round, great three first round that. draft picks in order to get Trey Lance. And now he's a backup on the Cowboys. Right. So, I mean, I, I think this is one of those things where the entire like recruitment, evaluation, uh, preparation of an NFL starting quarterback is such a crapshoot. And exactly what is the right way to do it? How do you evaluate them? I think is it's really one of the most perplexing aspects about this game because I think, you know, the conventional wisdom, I think, for, for a period there was, well, the Niners should just be tanking. Why are they, why are they you know, what's the, what's the point of having this great defense uh, if they haven't really solved the problem behind, uh, you know, under center? They should just, like, deal these parts for trade value and, uh, you know, rebuild once they've got, a, they've got a top 10. They didn't do that. They built a team that, like, you know, found ways to win games no matter who was who was uh, quarterback quarterbacking for them, and now they're in a position to maybe win a Super Bowl with a guy that nobody wanted to draft. So I think this is this is one of those things where, uh, you know, I don't think there is. I think the notion that like there's sort of any sort of antiquated approach to raising and evaluating quarterbacks. Man, if there if there was a clear meta where everyone was doing something that clearly worked and produced good results, I think a lot of people would would be following that. It's not people are not, you know, there, there's a lot of people who are who, who misfire in the NFL, but they're not dummies. It's just an incredibly hard position to to evaluate for. Uh, it's, a, it's a singular thing in in games. It's even the uh, baseball like starting pitcher thing doesn't. It, Football's so much more complicated than than an at bat. It's it, there's really nothing like it that I can that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have the number in front of me, but I know there was an analysis of like for like top of the uh, the draft, first round draft picks, the sort of things that most people would look at as a surefire thing, um, and the failure rate on those quarterbacks into turning into somewhere between a bust or just doesn't live up nearly to their potential is like, is at least 50%. And so what we're talking about here, we're like, Hey, just tank and get yourself one of these cheap, young, highly talented quarterbacks. Well, there's no guarantee. And that's infrastructure aside. Like the 49ers have objectively probably the best, like next to the Eagles, the best and the chiefs, like the best infrastructure in the NFL and there are certainly a lot of mitigating circumstances with Trey Lance. It's kind of unique in several regards, but kind of chewed him up and spat him out and just found someone else to put in to the machine. And at the end of the day, like the infrastructure is ultimately more important. Like if the infrastructure decides we should tank to get a better quarterback, then great. Maybe you trust the people around that to build it. But I think that's what's always been our problem with like the Bears. And I think now probably how Patriots fans are feeling, which is, oh, um, even if this team was to bottom out on purpose or by accident, do you really trust Bill Belichick to be the one who's going to draft that quarterback and provide a good space for him going forward? Because all the evidence of the post Tom Brady years is that the man has like kind of lost it. Like he is, he is not the quarterback that he used to be. And every time that every day that he sticks, every week he sticks around is really just suggesting more and more like when the it was a Brady or Belichick. Um, you know, I don't think that's an easy question to answer on Entangle with both of them together, but he's not doing his legacy of much of a <laughs> uh uh a service by 
the way, not even just the way they're not just losing, but the way that they're losing, like historically bad blowouts. Like, so I think they've scored three points in the last two games. Just unbelievable shit. I mean, to an extent, you'd also say, should Josh McDaniel uh, have just been <laughs> someone who, like, be content to run the offense at this organization? Because, like, this is clearly, you are clearly an effective offensive coordinator. There's not a lot of evidence that he's an effective coach. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's one of those things where the entire, you know, the Patriots is kind of the, the quintessential example of, like, how success can be stifling. Because Brady doesn't want to go, but he's clearly, like, working under a lower ceiling, growing limitations. Belichick is getting frustrated coaching, coaching him uh, and and dealing with some of the other bullshit that went along with Brady. Uh, and then you have, you know, a an offensive coordinator who has been convinced like it's his time. Like he needs to move up. He needs to grow and, and, and leave the nest. But it's possible he shouldn't have. It's possible that like the best thing that he could have done is go stay there and be part of one of the most accomplished like coaching staffs in the NFL. But the fact that Belichick then entrusted, uh, you know, a quarterback in a, in a key developmental phase to Matt Patricia is just one of those things where you've lost it, man. Uh, the ruthlessness with which you were able to evaluate and move players around like pieces on a board doesn't apply to your own staff. And it should, uh, Matt Patricia, there was no, there was no juice left there. Uh, so, so dump him. I, it was just a bizarre decision to bring him back and put him in charge of an offense when there was nothing in his past to suggest that he was, he was capable of that. Uh, I think, yeah, the Patriots look, look horribly lost and, you know, in some ways, how do you tell Belichick it's time to, time to go? Uh, but it, it, it clearly is. Yeah, well, and it, I think it's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to, uh, I forget the reporter who does all the great reporting out of um, New England. He also did that, uh, the uh, Andrew Luck profile uh, that you and I discussed some yeah. weeks back. Uh, Wickersham? Wickersham? I think that might yeah. be his name. Yes. Yeah, Wickersham? Yes. Um, I, I cannot wait to like hear. I want to get to the end of the season so I yeah. can read about what happened this season. Because if you read between the lines... The the breakup with Brady was mostly uh, Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, going along with Bill Belichick saying like, hey, eventually even he is going to be like all these other players that we've cut bait. Like what was the like you never wanted to sign a player that the Patriots cut because they always had a habit of cutting players right as they were about to fall off a cliff or you were about to discover that. It was their scheme and coaching yep. that was making them look good. It wasn't just the player and their raw talent. And at a certain point, like the thought process goes that, well, that's going to come for Tom Brady too. And then he goes off to Tampa Bay, like has a good couple of years there, wins a Super Bowl. And everything that has happened in terms of being in a value. A couple of years, they have a good year. Was it year one that he won that Super Bowl? Was that the. It might have been. They were pretty good. They were pretty good the second year. Um, um, they almost had that big uh, comeback against the Rams in the first round of the playoffs. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, that, yes, that first year was. I mean, like that was it. like the team was set up to literally just slot in a quarterback. They had an excellent defense, excellent offense. Um, but and I, I certainly think Tom Brady was was slipping as well. I think there's a mutual sort of slip that was occurring. But if you look at Belichick and all of his evaluation of talent, of free agency, 
of draft picks post Tom Brady, it is all broadly uh, a miscalculation. Um, and and in addition to that, you know, once you start just hiring old friends and family, like his son, who I have no sense of if he's any good yeah. at calling or evaluate. I think he's calling defensive plays for the Patriots right now. I think I have that right. I don't know. Certainly, like, sometimes, like, that stuff can rub off on you. And, like, but that they're all just, there are red flags everywhere. Like, pricey free agent signings that don't pan out. Um, coaching staff that is increasingly just your friends and your family. Uh, all of that is just trending in a direction where I think Belichick is like 20, 30 something wins away from the all time win total. But at the pace that this Patriots team is going the last couple of years, you really want him to stick around for five years, dragging this team to four or five wins. Uh, or Frank, frankly, it's not him dragging him there. He's dragging them back down (laughs) to four or five wins. Cause I think he's a, he's a negative contributing factor, uh, towards the infrastructure of that team. And it's a, it's an odd place to be. I, I, I would wager at this point that it's his final year. I do not think they would fire him. I think he just has way too much. I think my guess is they would come to an understanding and this would be his final year. And then he would, he would kind of gracefully exit here but then is he the kind of person like a pete carroll who can he just walk away or is some team going to get now this is the worst case scenario like rob oh god no you know what I'm, you know what i'm saying like yeah. oh what we need is like veteran leadership and the chicago bears bring in a bill belichick for like a one last ride <laughs> And it's just two years before he's actually forced finally into retirement. But I, I think if he was on the market, somebody picks him up. Um, I don't know who, uh, but uh, you know, I, on sheer media interest alone, some team would convince themselves that Bill Belichick could be the reclamation project, which is a weird place to be. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a bizarre thing. Uh, I'm so glad. So, Patrick, this is the year I finally bit the bullet and uh, I'm doing the Sunday ticket thing. OK, I, um, I, I, I tune into Red Zone, but I don't have the Sunday ticket. But I, I part of the so reason Red- I, don't, I don't do it is because I think I would become enchanted in the way that it sounds like you have. Well, so you get the Bears. Yes, correct. I get the Patriots. <laughs> If I tr- if I go away from Sunday Ticket, I go back to I can watch Red Zone or I can watch the Pats. Yeah, and the other part is I need to talk to my accountant and see like I'm pretty sure I can make a case that these sports subscriptions are a business expense at this point because I uh, yes we do a sports a podcast of- that meaningfully contributes to yeah the main job that you do I. So I, 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 I can't, I can't, I'm not your accountant, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that you're going to be on pretty safe ground. Yeah. It's that. one of those conversations that I need to have about like how much my internet costs. Can I deduct? Does it change now? The fact that I'm working for my own company versus like vice, I don't know. But, uh, I, I, I finally got the Sunday ticket thing to get away from the Pats. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was never good having to watch them week after week. That's like, even when miserable the Pats were great, to, to have just the default, like, because uh, otherwise, otherwise you're watching the Bears through like, hey, Patrick, what was that? Um, What's one of those weird websites where I got to click through porn in order to watch the Bears? <laughs> yep. Well, and then uh, so the Google Plus multiview thing is addictive as hell. Uh, not Google Plus. Uh, YouTube Google, TV. Uh, YouTube TV. They like have multi-view. done a 
My neighbor, so part of the reason I don't even sign up for it is because I often am watching football with my neighbor and he's got it on a second TV. That's the play. In his garage. And so it's like, okay, because he's got that on and we, you know, end up, you know, drinking and watching the games for for most of the afternoons on Sundays. And it is the way that you, it's like, you know, on any given Sunday, there is, there are somewhere between what? 10 to 13 games going on at once, like on at noon um, or this noon for central. Um, And I believe on the old direct TV Sunday ticket setup, you like couldn't flick between them. You had to flick between literal channels and like these different channel arrangements. And here YouTube TV has like, you can't like pick each box, but they have so many combinations that you're going to be able to find the box of four or two of games you want to watch. And crucially, the thing that is so cool is you can thumb between highlighting different games and it switches the audio over to that game. So you can like have the bears in like a corner of the four and have the uh, audio on there, but still be getting like the dolphins game and the the chargers game. And that stuff is just on a big enough TV. It's, like you, you know, you and I grew up watching like you know smallish tube TVs, like, thirty-two inch CRT, baby. D- dude, like you're fitting like one of those into each of those like boxes <laughs> when you're when you're splitting it up on like you know a seventy to eighty inch. I feel HD like Steve TV. and I every time I fire <laughs> yeah, it up, I'm, yeah. I'm just like li- living it up. But the other the other thing is uh, they're also smart about like last night the Monday football game was so so like it wasn't terribly interesting or dynamic. But then Multiview was giving you uh, playoff baseball and Monday Night Football. So, again, like just godsend stuff where it's like, okay, I can sort of half watch this game to see if it's good, but I can keep the sound on the relevant baseball action happening. So I'm I'm all in on YouTube TV now. Was like, that the – did they have the – were you – did you have the Houston game, the one that ended in the spectacular double play? Is that the one that you had on your, uh, on your Multiview? The Braves game? Yeah. Wasn't that – Yeah. yeah. The, Yes, uh, actually, I think I was watching that one. Just I, that was such a good game that I was just like, I think I went to full screen for that. Mm-hmm. I kept my eye on uh, the Diamondbacks, just working the uh, the Dodgers uh, while watching some some football. But yeah, so the ability to uh, get away from the Patriots as they just like sleepwalk <laughs> this season has been a godsend, and you get to see a lot of you get to see a lot of like really exciting games. There's a lot of like exciting up and coming teams that are in the process of what appear to be decent rebuilds uh you know in in terms of this this has turned out to be it might turn out to be a very good quarterback class uh that has that has come together this year which is very funny because it was the justin fields quarterback class that everyone was like this is just stacked like this is a ridiculous quarterback class well yeah and in that in that class you have i'm gonna put yeah re-ranking the trevor lawrence right Trevor Lawrence was the consensus number one, although there are lots of folks who followed college tape pretty well that were actually saying like, hey, like, you know, Justin Fields like is pretty anyway, like, um, but yeah, it was uh, Trevor. Trevor Lawrence uh, went number one overall, Zach Wilson. So he goes to the Jags. Zach Wilson, number two overall, goes to the Jets. Justin Fields, um, uh, number three overall, but he actually went like uh, a tenth in the draft order, I think. Um, Trey Lance. And Mac Jones, Trey Lance goes to the 49ers. Mac Jones goes to the yeah. uh, to the Patriots. And like of that list, I mean, we'll see what happens with Justin Fields. Like, this is what I meant. Where like it's a coin flip. And in fact, it might be yeah. worse than that. Like, it's a coin flip. When Justin Fields is going to be anything more than 
like an interesting career backup, which I think is actually more likely his fate than it is going to be like a meaningful starter. Um, that's one of those five that are yep. going to turn into a long time. And he might starter. end up being one of the more successful ones because the Mac Jones experiment appeared. That's done. <laughs> and the only thing left, the only big, there's two questions left. One is, uh, you know, Trey Lance, what becomes of him? Uh, you know, the, are the Cowboys maybe going to look at what they're paying Prescott and, and roll the dice on seeing if a rehab project there makes sense. Uh, the, the, but the, the, the big question is, can Trevor Lawrence still be the guy that people thought he was going to be? Because you want to talk about bad situations to walk into. I think you can still argue that Justin Fields maybe had the worst one, but I don't know Mm -hmm. because Trevor Lawrence walked into a coach who was a toxic bully. Uh, and was kind of known to be a toxic bully, even as oh, you mean a, a, co- you mean a college football coach? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, I think at best with a college football coach, you're you're kind of hoping you're just going to get some like cold blooded, like army general type character mm-hmm. who's like you were all just you you were all just little pieces on the board. Urban Meyer seemed to have just actual animosity for the people who play under him. And he brought that energy to the pros, which does not fly. No. Um, and so he ran he he ran his team into the ground. He ran it as if he was dealing with a bunch of like low tier college recruits that he could treat and however the hell he wanted. Uh, he turned that locker room completely against him, and uh, also was in was inept uh, because so much of what makes a great college coach is basically your ability to coast behind your recruiting ability. Uh, and, and so like Trevor Lawrence had a, had not just a lost season, but a season where the only interesting thing about his team was like, Hey, how bad are things getting with, with your coach there? Uh, and they got pretty bad. They took the hilarious detour of him going, urban Meyer going to his restaurant to oh my God. hit on like a call, like a college girl, uh, just embarrassing shit. Uh, but in all of that, Trevor Lawrence didn't really show much of is he going to be just one of the, like one of the biggest busts in in history because this was a guy who before he played a game of college ball as a high school student he was tapped as like he's going to be a number one pick like his his attributes and his abilities were so extraordinary that even as a high school player it was kind of just one of those things where people were penciling him in like soon as he's eligible he's going to be a number one pick unless something really changes he's Andrew Luck and actually if you go back yeah. there is a um I was I watched I finally watched this I watched this last season in just like the depths of despair. Um but there is a documentary about Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence like coming up together in the college ranks and I'll I'll, I'll look up the documentary. Um yeah. it's really interesting to watch cuz the two of them are actually kind of paired together as they were going through um a lot of this. But yes, he was he was he was like Lawrence was being anointed like anointed yeah. years before he entered the NFL. And you know, the, the other thing is that, you know, so the team was so bad, it was tough to assess because these guys are impossible to assess if the team is bad. If the team is shit, transcendence is really hard. This is something you and I would, you and I threw that word around a lot when it came to fields. Well, if he's the guy, he'll transcend. But man, if you don't have receivers, you can catch a fucking ball. There's not a lot to transcend. <laughs> and Lawrence was in a similar situation. And I think we got flashes last year with that amazing comeback against the Chargers. Uh, in the playoffs where like they had a disastrous first half and then coolly just put it to the chargers in the second half. Uh, but Hey, Lawrence is starting to look 
like the guy. And that makes me happy because the other thing that I was sort of admired about Trevor Lawrence is that he's a guy who will not give you the grinder quotes that people want where it's like the only thing I care about is winning. Uh, I'll do whatever it takes. He's not one of those like guys who's going to give you the meathead, uh, you know, grist for the sports columnist mill. He, I think, before he was drafted, I think he he said like, honestly, like you know, football's part of my life, but it ain't my life, which is just not something most quarterbacks like say. But he was just like, I got a pretty good life, and he does. Uh, and and so it's been heartening to see him. Uh, come around this year and they had a real one of those games that's going to be a real like check of like are you are you are you a credible team they were playing the the bills uh fresh off just beating the shit out of the dolphins uh the they played the bills at the uh tottenham hotspur stadium in in london and that did you get up for that did you see any of that game because for my money that was the most fun football on sunday Rob, I don't I don't have a choice. I'm up. Um, and what I always forget that the London games are on. And so it's always a delight when I'm just like turning on the TV to like, am I going to have the kids look at their iPad for a little bit while I drink coffee or am I going to put the TV on? I was like, oh, there's a game on. I was like, oh, kids, get the tablets. <laughs> Daddy's yep. watching at least a little bit of football at 9 a.m. Um, and yeah, so I, I caught a decent that game was a little iffy in the first half, but then both the Bills and the um, the Jags kind of like started trading blows a little bit more in, in the oh, second I, half. I would argue the first half was great too. The score was just low. It was like, it was a really hard fought game uh, with those teams really, really going at each other. But yes, then they started, then the offenses started to uh, make their presence felt a little bit more. I think the defenses were getting tired, but the big thing was Trevor Lawrence suddenly looked, you see, this is easier to see in college. Sometimes these guys are just so stone cold. They're so clearly better play- football players than the guys they're in the field with, right? Where it's like, you know, you just watch the quarterback do five-step drop ball, just go sailing. And somehow somebody's impossibly open in the middle of the field, and it's, it's another touchdown in a, in a college blowout. And there's times it started to look like that with, with Lawrence playing uh, for, for the Jags. And he has... You know, he places balls perfectly for his receivers. He hits guys in stride. He is not playing shy in the pocket. All seems to be coming together. And so the thing that gives me a little bit of, like, one, it's just kind of cool to see him maybe panning out. But two, going back to the question of how do we evaluate these guys? What if it? What if we're in a position where, like, oh, Trevor Lawrence isn't going to show what he can really do until, like, year four? Maybe he's doing it right now, but what if it's, you know, what if the real, like, the number one draft pick, the thing you were hoping to get, that might not show up till till late. Not everyone's going to be Patrick Mahomes, uh, you know, c- coming in year two and just, just, you know, blowing up the league. No, but uh, you, the thing about, yes, the, your best chance to have an advantage, a meaningful advantage at winning the Super Bowl is to have a talented young quarterback on the rookie uh, quarterback contract that hits more or less immediately or in, or in like year two or yep. year three, we saw that happen with, uh, um, you know, on the Bengals, right. Joe Burrow is, I think a great example of that. Um, but if what happens with the Jags is what's, what's going to happen with the Jaguars is what we kind of hope we're going to happen with the bears. Like, look, really don't think we're going to Super Bowl during Justin Fields's rookie contract. That just is not the arc that this team is on from a player management perspective. Like it's just going to take too much time 
to scrape off the garbage, yep. clean things up, and build around him. But by the time you get to, say, the a pick up the fifth-year option, you're beginning to negotiate that extension, uh, are you confident that you're just going to be in it every year for the next 10 years? Some years you'll miss the playoffs. Some years you like, you know, you'll get close to the Super Bowl and you'll lose out. But are you just going to be in it? That's all play teams, fans, I think, that's what all I'm really looking for, is a chance to be in it year after year. It's the thing that always drove me nuts about the Packers more than anything else. It wasn't the, just the rivalry, like, or the fact that they're always pushing us around. It was the sheer jealousy of every year we have a chance. Because football isn't 100-plus games. It's not 50-plus games. It's like less than 20. Um, it's the kind of thing where it's a big, meaningful, uh, if, if, the, if, the, if the league adds a single game to the schedule, which means that every year, because it's a violent sport, there's always a chance that an, a window is going to open up. A play, you only got to win one playoff game to advance. Like It's not a best of three. It's not a best of five. It's not a best of seven. And so that's why with football, if you can have that guy you're going to have better seasons. You're going to have worse seasons. But you're always going to have a shot if you have somebody that is in that top 10 uh, yeah. sort of window. Once you get below then, you know, it starts getting dicey, right? Like you talk about the Cowboys. Like I think Dak is a good quarterback. Is Dak on his best? I mean, Dak's on his best day is probably like between like 7 and 10, right? That's on his best days. He probably on average is more in like the Kirk Cousins zone, right? Of the like top 15 is going to be pushed higher up based on what's around him. But that's the thing the Bears need to figure out before the end of this year. That's the thing that, like, I think the Jags already know. Trevor Lawrence is the guy. You're signing yeah. him. You're giving him the mega contract. He is going to be there whether Doug Peterson is there in three years or not. And he is going to give your team a shot in every single game. We're not there with Justin Fields. I don't think, no. if I was betting, we'll be there at the end of the season. Um and I think that's where you're trying to get on that rookie contract is maybe you catch fire and you're like the Bengals and you just go to the Super Bowl and then almost go there two years in a row. But more likely, you give yourself a, a, a much uh, like the dice you're rolling has much bigger numbers on it in that four year span. And then after that, well, hopefully you have the infrastructure to take advantage of opening the door that that quarterback is going to keep you know, open for you every, every single year. Yeah, it's, and then the, the, the only other model that seems to really work is, uh, the, you've assembled an amazing team and the one piece that's missing is the quarterback and you bring in, <laughs> you bring in a mercenary an eight an eight, an aged mercenary to to win you that Peyton Manning in, in Denver Super Bowl that, that, uh, Tom Brady, in in Tampa Bay, him and him and Gronk doing it one last time. Uh, it's you know that that's that seems to be the other model. But yeah, it seems like Lawrence is going to be a piece that they can build around. It's unclear uh, whether whether the Bears are, but it can go away so fast. Like I think, um, like I was watching some of that Ravens game. Hey, Lamar Jackson looks like Justin Fields out there, and a big part of that is because you just look like an asshole when nobody's catching your fucking passes. Uh, by the way, Nelson Aguilar is on that team, a team that has developed problems with like having impactful drops. And 
it's kind of astonishing that Aguilar keeps finding himself in situations like this. Well, he shouldn't be that like Aguilar shouldn't be that central to the offense, uh, nor should Zay Flowers, who is a rookie wide receiver who is taking just a shitload of passes from Lamar. Um, that's not really the role that like rookie wide receivers are supposed to play. Like wide receiver is notoriously extremely difficult for like first year uh, kids coming out of college is is a big transition. Um, And then you've got, you know, Odell Beckham Jr. who you paid an unbelievable amount of money and a player I like at his best, like is so much like he was so much fun on that Rams team and in that Super Bowl, especially where he was on, if he had not torn his ACL or his Achilles uh, that, he could have made a credible argument for being the MVP of that game, which is ext- extremely hard for a wide receiver to do. Um, and so they just don't. Yeah. Like, I mean, you got Zay flowers, like running deep routes and just the ball whoop right through his hands. Like that was a touchdown. That's six points whoop, gone. Um, and Lamar's a good passer. I mean, that's the difference with him and fields like fields has had passers or, you know, pass catchers drop balls that they should have caught, but also, Fields is like still a pretty unproven like passing quarterback like Lamar Jackson like his career has been so weird because in college he was a passing quarterback who also ran and he comes to the NFL and becomes a running quarterback that also passes and now that he's older and is you know his first major contract he's you know rightfully trying to pivot towards something that will protect his body uh, going yeah. forward but like the things they've put around him do not seem like they are seem like they're wasting a year of an excellent transcendent quarterback, which is, which is too bad. Uh, Cause he's so much fun to watch when he's good. Do you want to, would you want to do a funny? What if this like occurred to me, we yeah. brought up recently. Do you remember that the bears almost traded for Russell Wilson? <laughs> I don't remember that. That was the, that was the, Oh the, my God. The, that was the end. Um, was it the same year that they drafted Justin Fields? This is coming back to me though, as you talk Russell about Russell Wilson. Yeah. God, I'm I'm terrified to search our our DMs, Patrick. About uh, March twenty seventh, March seventeenth, twenty twenty one. Bears offered three first round picks, a third, two starters, um, veterans. No, no, no. So I was all out on on Wilson by then because I had watched enough Seahawks games that was like. He was so clearly a shadow of what he'd been. Like that is a, that is an astonishing indictment of that would have been Pace, right? Who was still making that offer? Uh, Pace that been... and um, the Seahawks GM signed off on it, and then uh, why am I blanking on the Seattle's coach? Uh, 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 Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll. He nixed it. He's the one who said no. Like let's let's let this ride for one more year. And you read this article from. Bleacher Report. Uh, da, da, da. If the Seahawks did indeed turn down a trade package headlined by three first-round picks, it suggests no amount of compensation would have been enough to convince them to part ways with a franchise player. The 32-year-old has been one of the premier quarterbacks in the NFL since entering the league as a third-round pick in 2012. Um, last season was one of the best of Wilson's career. He's completed a career-best 68.8% of his attempts for 4,212 yards, a career-best 40 touchdowns, and 12 picks. The Bears are likely just a top flight quarterback away from being a Super Bowl contender. And Wilson undoubtedly would have filled their biggest need. I mean, whew, like talk about a bullet 
dodged, we would be in the situation that the Broncos are in now, in which, fuck, we've mortgaged the next three to four years of this franchise around something that we can't build around. And for as much pain as the Bears have given me the last couple yeah. of years, that what if is that that keeps me up at night by thinking about the fact that Russell Wilson might have been on this team. So uh, after the Bears won on Thursday, I was I had to basically <laughs> I had to tear my living room down because we were having furniture delivered. So Bears won. I realized that there's a possibility like a couch is showing up at 730 in the morning. I have to just dismantle everything right now. So I throw on uh, I, I throw on the TV uh, just to have something going on in the background while I'm uh, doing like, you know, furniture stuff and 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 unhooking things. And I caught um, Shannon Sharp has an interview show Club Shay Shay. <laughs> but he had a long interview mm-hmm. with Marshawn Lynch. I meant to it, it was late. Otherwise, I, I would have. Uh, DM'd you and you and Austin about it because I think everyone should watch it. It is such a fascinating interview. First of all, it's one. It's like one of the clearest examples of like Marshawn is just an odd dude uh, mm-hmm. who once you get him, once he feels comfortable and once he trusts you, he'll he'll chat. He's very voluble. He's uh, he's, very, he's he's got a lot to say. Uh, but as he put it, he learned early that the media was not trustworthy. Uh, but it was a fascinating interview. Tons tons of like amazing stuff. Uh, some of it like really painful. Um, like he loved playing in Buffalo, um, but the racism he encountered in Buffalo was so extreme. He was like, "I need to get the fuck out of here." Um, like stopped by the cops like five times uh, while he was while he was there, including once like right outside the stadium. Uh, but the, uh, the other thing was like the Buffalo media, like really turned on and painted him out, you know, made him out to be like, you know, a thug, which really pissed him off. And that's, that's really where his like refusal to talk to the press starts to stem from. But the things he has to say about Russell Wilson are really striking because I think we talked about last year, it seemed like everyone was kind of waiting. Just like mm-hmm. finally we get to just say like, fuck you, Russell Wilson. Everyone was just like, you know, just lining up to take shots at this guy, which you felt kind of bad about, uh, you know, with, with you know, to see, to see him going through. He's always seemed like a, a pretty unobjectionable, nice guy. And that might be true. But man, Marshawn did not paint a good picture of him as a teammate, uh, you know, especially insofar as he was just not a guy who wanted like in 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 Lynch's telling who wanted anything to do with his teammates. Uh Lynch tells this story that was kind of jaw-dropping about where he wanted to talk to Russell cuz they'd had kind of a challenging game and Russell was clearly feeling raw about it and Lynch had, had a really good game so we wanted to chat. And he can't get can't get in touch with him. He has to reach out to the office of player personnel. Oh my see god. And then you know, Russell never calls and he calls the office again. He's like, what's up? And they said, well, you, sh- he, you know, you should have gotten a call from him. And Lynch pulls up his phone and he got a call from a block number uh, that Wilson is, is like was so <sighs> intensely private and wanted to have so little to do with like his teammates that like he like everyone else is on a group chat <laughs> in the team. And like, that's not Wilson. Uh, and like that vibe sort of permeated the team. And it's why like there were a lot of guys at the Seahawks who didn't really like 
Russell, and then Pete Carroll treated him really differently. Special treatment across the board. Well, that's QBs, right? Like, like if they're, if you know, as, as important as that Seahawks defense was, and it was for that like a really special run that they had for that that couple of years. QBs always get the the pretty boy treatment. Like they're always going to yep. be treated differently because the position is is special. Like it is unique, but it's one thing for you and I to know that watching it as a sport as an entertainment product, I have to imagine that feels very different when you are in the locker room after a brutal loss or something like that and you're getting screamed at by your coaches and Russell's being, you know, ushered off uh, out of just out of frame. But even the weird thing, like, so like one of the things that Lynch brought up was in the wake of him having this like sort of misconnection with Wilson where they, where they were trying to like arrange this phone call. After that, Pete Carroll makes an announcement that if anyone has any conversation they want to have with Russ, they can have it with him and Russ. And so it's like weird little tattletale stuff like that that just like really did uh, set the stage. Really good interview, like really well worth watching. You'll come to, uh, figure out a lot of things about uh, Marshawn Lynch uh, and also his entire description of that infamous Super Bowl uh, collapse where instead of calling Lynch up the middle on the one yard line, they throw the pass that's intercepted with Malcolm Butler. His, his description of that is just, just unforgettable. (laughs) Um, But it is, it is an incredible interview. Uh, Well worth, well worth watching. I think it's like one of those, the Seahawks were a really important team in their day and it is and Marshawn Lynch is one of those is is one of those fascinating guys to have played in the NFL and this is probably the most like unguarded I've seen him totally mesmerizing interview uh so so worth worth checking out um I guess that you know that reminds me you, you pulled out a letter here because uh, I I feel like there is a play in the NFL that is trying to recreate like Marshawn Lynch <laughs> doesn't play in the NFL anymore but if only we could make every every quarterback into Marshawn Lynch. It's true. Uh, is this one from from Alyssa? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Alyssa writes, "Hey, Remap, I'm curious about your stance about the hottest hot button issue for the birds these days. Uh, the birds being the the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, are you for?" Slash against the brotherly shove. Is that what we're calling it? Is that the official? Okay. Uh, Do you foresee it lasting through the season or into next season without the NFL ruling against it? Love all you do, Alyssa. For people that don't know, the brotherly shove is a, there is a play called the quarterback sneak uh, in which the quarterback, you know, kind of like pushes their way through like the offensive line to try and gain a yard. This is a riff on the quarterback sneak in which, correct me if I'm describing this incorrectly, Rob, essentially, like, you get some big men behind you who are, the big men are always on the offensive and defensive line. They, they take your ass and they, they push that ass forward, like, with all their might. So it's like a QB sneak combined with hundreds and hundreds of power of offensive line muscle to get you... Like essentially guaranteed one or two yards every single time. Yeah. And I saw a stat about it where it is a wildly successful play play. Uh, 80% of teams are converting on third down calling this play. Uh, but the Eagles are converting 93% of the time <laughs> uh, calling this play. And that's in part because 
uh, Jalen Hurts was a just beast of the weight room and had all those like ridiculous videos, right? Like, and people joked about like, well, this is useless strength for a football player. Like you can squat these ridiculous numbers, but that's not really a stat that a quarterback really needs. Well, they found use for it, (laughs) which is that he is leg pressing his way uh, through, through defensive lines. Uh, And uh, you know, the bears are starting to call this play more now as well. Cause Justin Fields is deceptively big. Yeah and and strong and like you will just watch teams de- defensive lines get get rolled there's not a great counter for it so there's been discussion in the nfl about it's like should this be once something is that effective like should there be rules around it should there be regulations around it like again the, the nfl the no fun league um and i'm sure this would hurt more if my team was the one being gashed by it over and over um if i was was in the eagles division but it really does just seem like anything else. Eventually, there will be a defensive counter to this that maybe doesn't uh, squash it out, but like changes the percentages where it, you're not necessarily going to call it every time, where it's like you get it closer to a 50-50 uh, proposition. But until that happens, like, I don't know, suck it up. Like, what, do you, what are you supposed to regulate? You can't grab the QB's ass and push them forward? I'm not, like, I'm not sure well, what they, people I mean, are they asking have, for. I mean, that, that would be similar to uh, not allowing guys to vault over the line on yeah. a uh, yeah. like field goal, which they used to do. Yep. Uh, and now they don't like and look sick very... when some looks sick when people do it. It looks so cool to watch because <laughs> basically that's still kind of happening like, yeah, with great frequency. Um, and it's just like it's like any other sort of like ticky tacky play in the, in the NFL. It's got to be particularly egregious for you to get called on it because like on a lot of field goal attempts, like guys are trying to get away with things just like they're always trying to get away with anything. There's, players are not always following the rules in sports. They're just doing what they can get away with until they get caught. But I think, I think I can, I haven't seen, uh, there's a lot of rules governing how linemen are allowed to play and on both sides of the ball. And I could see it being like with how low the offense is getting. Now they're not allowed to do uh, what are called chop blocks where you, where you drop and you take someone's knees out. That's not allowed anymore. Um, but I can see where the, there might be things happening with the way the push is unrolling that like defenders can't really do anything about because they are not allowed to like get low enough to stop it. But I also think one thing you see that like one reason this is this is really being exploited is um, the league used to be packed with enormous nose tackles who like, you know, you can line three guys up against me. And I will I will bull rush them because I'm a big, strong boy. And as linemen have gotten faster and faster, they've gotten smaller. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're still, yeah. like, you know, big athletes. But defensive linemen are, are, are kind of a different, like, body type than they were 15, 20 years ago. And so I do kind of suspect one reason this is so effective is because, like, I think there's a lot of defensive lines that you couldn't churn the way that they're getting churned right now. Um, but now they, now they are losing this, this like sheer, this, this battle of sheer mass. I think for me, it's like, is the play unsafe? And it doesn't seem to be, I, 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 I you know, I, I haven't seen a lot of like people coming out of that pile hurt. And so that to me is where I'm probably most interventionist in terms of should something be ruled out because it's like dangerous. If it's not dangerous, then I kind of would want to see how it plays out from here. Yeah, let the, sure let the meta work itself out as opposed to uh, 
like and it also it's only been a season like there's just not enough data right like this is this play was popularized by last year's philadelphia eagles uh a team that historically over the last 10 years has said has had some of the best offensive lines in football and so it might also be the case that the eagles are one or two injuries away from you just can't like you just can't do it the way that you used to do it before. It's interesting. I, you bringing this topic up reminds me of, I sent you, you and Austin a message about this. Like my daughter is cheerleading. And uh, so I'm often sitting in the stands where like different football coaches are sitting before like their team's rotation is up for the next game. And I overheard these two coaches that were getting their teams ready for the, the game that my daughter's like cheerleading team would be cheering in front of and they were just furious over i don't know if it's a district level policy i i, I kind of walked in mid-conversation to hearing it had behind me but essentially at like the elementary school f- football level they were upset that in blowouts they were being encouraged to let the other team score a touchdown so that the other team has a sense of like putting a play together and like having it work and three the, request huh yeah and these guys are like, how how are these kids ever going to understand life like how are they if, if, uh, if they're going to the football field oh and they get something they didn't earn well th- we're just going to be dealing with that for like when they get older and they're adults and they're going to be moving back home and asking for handouts and it's like it was essentially like a like welfare argument over like, like a welfare queen argument over the fact that like hey maybe fourth graders like should understand how a play comes together and succeeds because that's probably part of what you're trying to impart to kids at that age is yes, winning and losing, but also planning and scheming and how a thing works. Like maybe that's like Jesus Christ, man. This is, that is so funny. That is the stereotype of toxic, like league coaching stuff. Cause, cause these guys want it to be about them. Right. They're like, if I'm coaching my team, I should be allowed to like fucking run the score up. And that is not why, like, the purpose of an elementary school coach is to teach kids some fundamentals of a game, make sure they have a good time. But mostly it's like, does this interest you? Does this seem like something you might want to do more of? Yeah. And there is no virtue in having a game where like a, a team is just getting the shit blown, like, you know, shit blown out of it. And they can't put the play together. They they don't they don't get to experience like half of what a game is supposed to be. <laughs> right. There's no point in that. Uh, but yeah, it is so funny that. But so many of these guys like it's this weird. It's the it's this weird thing of first of all this belief that they themselves are creatures of some sort of Hobbesian like everything we got it we had to fight for we had to claw <laughs> I know we, uh, with our fingernails and it's like no you fucking didn't like I don't know anything about them but my my guess is like in the suburbs you were at you know what I mean like my mm-hmm. guess is these guys who not have known like a ton of adversity no real adversity they think they have but they probably haven't uh, but like they really want they want to conceive of themselves as like these these alphas who, you know, got, you know, the eat what they killed. And they molders got of men. Molders. Like, that's what we're doing on the and field. And they're going to pass that on. With these fourth graders. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you're not molding anyone. It's a Sunday. It's like a Sunday morning with a bunch of fucking fourth graders, like, who could barely 
line up without itching their ass like and you're probably turn and that's the thing you're you're like guys like that are destructive to sports because like they kill youth sports this is one reason yeah. i think that like youth sports participation in some sports like has really collapsed uh football's already kind of against headwinds because it's such a dangerous game like there's there's increasing evidence that like peewee football is not safe to play like you can't expose kids to you know there's the broader any amount of head collisions right like it's the the the, you know the the increased evidence that even though the the nfl and society focuses on like the giant collisions two guys whacking heads that actually the most dangerous thing that happens on a football field are the offensive line and defensive line having minor collisions on like the most innocuous of plays and you can extrapolate that back to the moment you strap on actual football equipment and you're doing that when kids are you know, yep. eight, nine, ten years old that you could you have a whole lifetime of minor brain injuries that can add up over a, a lifetime. Right. But even setting that aside, like then there's the question, and this is across a lot of sports. So many kids have awful experiences playing teen like youth sports because there are just ridiculous parents involved in it somehow. Uh, and these are formative years, you know, like there's capacity for these guys to be scarring in their interaction with kids. Uh, yeah. And this, this notion that you got to life's real lessons are taught on the football field. No, they're not, sir. They are not like, this is not (laughs) like sports are not a microcosm for life. Like I, I love, I love a good sports movie where like the metaphor holds, you know, and like Mm -hmm. to a degree it's about like how, how one plays is how one lives. I love that shit. That's not true. That ain't real. (laughs) Well, especially when at the ages we're talking about, like these kids no. are learning how to add and subtract. Like, like why? Like the like. And I think it's. I think it's. But I, I think this is very tied up in like suburban football coaches, especially these folks that end up. How did you end up coaching this football team? Why are you here? Like, are you here because this is what you wanted to do, or this is where you ended up? And I think you end up like. With a certain type of person that ends up in that role, and I think that's why more often than not they tend to be like the worst examples of coaching because their circumstances led them to a place they didn't choose to be. Right? Like, well, you were—I uh, didn't read the story yet, but what's the story you, you had linked about? Like, uh, it's the, the Steve old fo- Young, Steve Young, and like finding the joy in coaching his daughter's flag football, um, like. That sounds, I didn't read the story, but like what it's pitching sounds like a man finding peace in like coaching and education as opposed to like, I should have been teaching it at the NFL and instead I'm here teaching fourth graders how to like throw a, throw it to a tight end. The other weird subtext to that is like, imagine things are, there's a lot of salve in, for, for Steve Young because I think he runs a hedge fund that has 4.6 billion under management. No, oh, no. So like. Yeah, which is weird. Like, I don't know, like, when he became a hedge fund guy. Is he the actual, like, fund manager? I have no idea, but he's, like, part of it. Uh, but the other weird thing is Steve Young's this, such a fascinating character because how do you – he is an all-time great quarterback in the NFL. He played behind maybe the greatest quarterback in NFL history, Prima Holmes. You know, he came in behind Joe Montana. And they have this like horribly fraught relationship. So yeah, just watching like Steve Young, you know, come to come to grips with with aging and his place in life, his place in football. It's it's cool. It was a good it was a good story. But yeah, like for for him, it's he just wants kids to have that feeling of like the satisfaction of doing something with your body. 
and like it involves a little planning and execution and having it all come together. And that's that's the joy of teaching that. That's the joy of like, you know, you give people that experience. Whatever level you play at, you will carry those memories with you your your whole life. Like there's there's plays I remember from you know, high school, uh, you know, little league baseball, like there's, there's good stuff and bad stuff there, but the, the good ones stand out. It's, well, it's, it's what you chase, fun. right? It's what lends you like, uh, you know, it's, uh, like when I play golf, right? Like all you yeah. need is one good swing and you spend the rest of the 18 holes trying to capture that feeling of like, Oh my God, if I could just put every swing together and like land the swing, like, damn, like, that's what makes golf fun. That's like an extension of that same idea. It's like, that's why yeah. you let the kids score the fucking touchdown, you toxic dipshit. Because then they go, yeah. oh my God, like if we do this and this and like we all work together as a team, we can do that. And like, that's the motivating factor when you are in a formative year of trying to appreciate a sport to understand, is this an activity that I do? Because my parents require me to do two activities per like, yep. you know, like. That's what my kids have to do. They have to sign up for two activities. I don't care what they are. I don't care if it's a repeat. Um, but you got to sign up for two things, and that's and that's how we structure things. But because um, you want to find, go go find your rhythm. What's the thing that makes sense for your brain and your body? And it's like if this one doesn't, go do something else. When I grew up, my dad made me do basketball and baseball till I was in high school, and then he didn't care anymore, and that sucked. It was a horrible. Like I liked basketball. That part worked out. I resented going to baseball my entire like youth. I hated playing baseball. I would have preferred to have done anything else. And so that's what like bothered me so much about that. I was like, how do you expect anyone to fall in love with this if this is how you're trying to instruct them on how to appreciate what's beautiful about a sport and teamwork? It's like what, being a bully to the other team? Like I don't uh. Do you listen to any of Dominique Foxworth's? Uh, no, I need like, to finally ask. Or? I need to finally add it because uh, I I know that you you quite like uh, his well, podcast. I think I like Bomani Jones's podcast a lot, and Foxworth is on that a lot. I'm not oh, sure I hear, about, so I hear Foxworth a lot because he does a lot of collabs with Mina Kimes. But now Mina Kimes just had a baby and is going right. to be off for a couple months. So maybe what I need to do is replace that with Foxworth's uh, podcast. He was he was on. Um, Dan Lebetard's uh, mm-hmm. show a few weeks ago, and he's talking about like he was adamant he never wanted to coach youth football, in part because he just doesn't want to be everyone defaulting to Dominique. You played in the NFL, you coach our team, and it's like that doesn't translate. He has no interest in it. But the mm-hmm. other thing he talks about not wanting is he knows that the fucking weirdos who show up in youth sports are going to be like, I can beat Dominique Foxworth in a in a football game. I can I can coach a better team and. Like just the just the knowledge he has that like if he's standing there on the sideline like helping a team full of kids like learn how to play football, him being there is going to turn into this weird like macho opportunity for yeah. the you know pissed off dad on the other sideline, and he's like I just don't want to expose kid the kids on my team to that energy, uh you know the the knowledge that there are guys there who. I think your best youth sports coach, and I have both types, your best youth sports coaches are exactly what you, you described. Like it is, you are a facilitator of fun and you want people to have a good experience playing a game that you enjoy. Uh, and then also just make sure that, you know, the kids all get along and, and, and play nice and, you know, help put, put win and wins and losses in, in some sort of context for, for kids. And then the bad, the, the bad ones, and these are the people that self-select to do it most extensively are, 
I think I could have been a coach. <laughs> I could, if I'd really put more effort into it, I could have been a pro player, at least a college player. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, but youth sports is not the place to prove that. No. Do you want to touch on the collapse of the Cubs here, Rob? As we, <laughs> the it's Cubs, old news, but we should. Yeah, we can do it briefly. I mean, the Cubs this year. Uh, what I would say is they were a year ahead of schedule. Um, this was a team based on its roster construction that was really waiting for next year to be a year where they push, make moves at a trade deadline, want to be a playoff team. Uh, they had just extraordinary play from, uh, Cody Bellinger having a, like free agent season that is going to turn him into getting a monster extension after coming off from the Dodgers, I think is where he was before. And another player who we'll get into in a second, Seiya Suzuki, um, who's been on the, the team for a couple of years now, who had an up and down last year, real kind of streaky, and had a really bad streak uh, this year, but then was just on a fucking heater. Um, the best the best hitter they had on the team in its last month. It was a team that was really good, then really bad, then really good right before the trade deadline and convinced uh, ownership to become buyers instead of sellers, to actually add to the team and make a playoff push. And they were, I believe, one month out from the season being over, like a 99% lock to get in the playoffs. And then they lost the vast majority of their games as they entered that final month. Crucial like stretches where they lost over and over to the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, crucial stretches where they lost to the, to the Brewers. And they ultimately, their season ended on a play that you do you want to recount it? You, you mentioned it as something that has been on your mind as you were thinking about Chicago sports. Yeah. I mean, they'd had this, they were a team that was getting hot at the right time. And then yes, they were collapsing at the exact wrong time. And, uh, you know, the, the, the teams behind the wild card race were coming on stronger and had better, uh, schedules and they had to play the Braves who were historically great this year. Like they had a, uh, an historic regular season, but there was a hope that maybe the Braves would just take a few games off against the Cubs. Uh, You know, that you can't, you know, maybe they would pace manage themselves a little bit as they, as they turn their attention toward the, toward the playoffs. And the Cubs had this like really fun game where they jumped out to an early lead. We're just beating the hell out of the Braves. Uh, And they really looked like they were going to cruise to a win there. And maybe that was the first game of the series. Maybe this is going to change things. And then, they started giving up runs and their offense stalled out. And you're just like, this is, this is getting a little dicey, a little nerve wracking. And uh, then with the, with the game on the line, uh, them, them like nursing this, uh, this, this narrow lead men on base, the uh, guy, I even, for, I even forget who hit it. But the Braves launched what should have been a routine fly ball. This should not have mm-hmm. been. It would have been a deep fly ball, but not that deep. Uh, and there were two two Cubs outfielders out there. Uh, Seiya Suzuki and uh, who did he wave off? I forget. Uh, but it was uh, it was like a, a whatever player he waved off was a player who more traditionally would have taken. Like it's a routine catch that is even more routine for the player that he waved off. Yeah. And Suzuki gets under it. And just loses it. And you just watch the ball like bounce. Uh, and it's one of those catastrophic plays where that's going to be 
that's going to be runs in. That's going to be that's going to be multiple scores. Uh, and it was just like in a heartbeat. The season wasn't fully over, but it was one of those things where the Cubs couldn't afford to give a game like this. Like it was going to be tough taking games off the Braves, and now they'd allowed them to come back from the dead, and they committed this game wrecking error, and. They had a few more games left to play in the season, but it was just the moment you knew it was done. The season was done. Um, they And, you know, the thing that I like, and I've talked to my uh, friends in Chicago about this, is that if you'd ask, what are the Cubs going to be this year? And if you'd asked, hey, at the end of the season, late, late in the September, they're going to be a little frustrating, but they're playing meaningful games related to like where the wins and losses really fucking matter. And they did like I could not be like happier other than you know, I got issues with like like do is uh, is what's his face like a good manager of the team like David Ross like I, I don't know but the players like him and sometimes that's enough uh, but like they were a team with they have excellent pitching like starting pitchers um, they had a, a an offense that was consistently scoring points which was their big problem when they had like their big three anthony rizzo and chris bryant and javi baez um during like that the last era of of the cubs um and they have an excellent farm system young likable players and basically the structure of like how they were losing games towards the end was they'd score a bunch of runs and then their relief pitchers would give up the game and the offense couldn't put enough on the board to keep up with a very leaky relief pitching system. And they had so many injuries. Like they had a great relievers all season right. and then they systematically got injured. And so it's a team that shouldn't have been in the playoffs anyway, but were good enough to like put themselves in the conversation. If you look how the wild card has gone, they were clearly not going to leave the wild card. Like I don't, I don't think that was going to happen. Um, like the brewers who were clearly better than the Cubs got swept um um the marlins who were the other team that the the cubs are trying to edge out got swept and so you know it would have been something like to put up on the board like they did it they did something that they weren't supposed to do this season they made it to the playoffs build on that as 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 heartbreaking as that suzuki drop was i still come out of this season being like i i'm ex- so excited for the off season and what that te- like because that team should be like actually good yeah, now, like the, the 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 season to have actual heartbreak is this coming one because I've seen what it, an underdog team was able to do. Now they if they put a little ammunition into this team, what are they? What could they get away with? And so I'll actually be sad next season when they you know go after a couple of players, sign some big big ticket free agents, um, and then maybe end up underperforming. But uh, I don't know they. They're more fun than the Bulls are going to be this year, Rob. But we're so close to getting our guy back. We get to listen to our favorite announcer awfully soon. I'm not bothering watching preseason. I am not. I, I am not enough of a sicko to watch preseason like NBA basketball when everybody's sitting. I can't do that. Um, but I am. I'm excited. Hopefully, by the time the next time we do sports, we can probably start. We can actually pre like start talking about Stacey the King NBA scenes. Yeah, Stacy King watch. We can start talking about the NBA season because that is upon us. Um, uh, GridironGames.com is where you can join uh, Remaps uh, Pick'em League, um, uh, where you can just kind of pick winners and losers each week. No money involved, just for fun. Uh, currently, the standings are uh, Rob 
uh, 39 of 64. Uh, me, 37 of 64. I forgot to pick one of them, the Thursday night game last week, but it ultimately didn't matter because it was the Bears commanders and I would have picked the commanders to win. So <laughs> it didn't matter that I didn't, it didn't count for against because I would have, I would have picked wrongly. Um, let's rush uh, through this, uh, upcoming, uh, week five slate, uh, or week six slate in the NFL, uh, Denver at Kansas city on Thursday night. Oh. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yep. Yep. Uh Baltimore at Tennessee. Uh this says 8:30 a.m. so I'm assuming this is another London game. I don't know anymore. I don't I agree. Um I agree. I might uh, say Tennessee. <laughs> like honestly, here, who's flying out there first? That's who what, I'm giving the win to. Wasn't that, that a big thing with decisive. the Jags and Bills? Like there was some Jags controversy there for like 4 days, 5 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know that, that's always a thing. I remember the Bears, it was a thing with them when they had the Khalil Mack re- revenge game against the Raiders. I I don't know. Uh Washington at Atlanta. I Washington I like looks pretty yeah. pretty bad when the Bears played them. So, um I'm more inclined to take Atlanta in this situation. Even though Desmond Ritter does not look like a good quarterback uh either. Minnesota at Chicago. Um, Justin Jefferson Bears is not might playing. Get this. It's garbage time for the for uh, Minnesota. Minnesota having only won two games now. Justin Jefferson, far and away the best player on their team, has a hamstring injury, which are notoriously a pain to come back from. I think he's on IR, which means he's out for four weeks at the bare minimum. Like he's gone. Yeah, so he's gone for the next four games. They might not win. I haven't looked at their schedule, but like they might be in time to trade away assets and restock for the future uh territory so the bear i i still think this bears like we said justin's got to show it for much longer consistent stretches of time there is no reason to think the bears could not blow this but i suspect that the bears probably should win this game but do not color me surprised at at either outcome i'm i'll probably pick the bears because it's more fun but i'm not gonna be sobbing too hard if minnesota wins um seattle at Cincinnati, uh, Seattle's good. Like they're yeah. hard, hard fought team. The Bengals look like they're correcting. Like Burrow seems like he's at least upright uh, now. Um, so I feel like this is actually a pretty even matchup. Surprisingly, so. Yeah, I would agree. I guess I might. I, I have a little more confidence in the Seahawks right now. San Francisco at Cleveland. I believe Deshaun Watson, who was out. Uh, with an injury uh, last week, will be in for this game. Uh, Cleveland has one of the best defenses in the NFL, um, but I just I see no reason to bet against the 49ers. Yeah, at allegedly this point. so did the Cowboys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So I don't. I, I at this point I don't know when the San Francisco is going to lose, and I'm not sure they're going to until they get bitten by an injury bug, um, which I hope it doesn't happen because they're fun to, they're fun to watch play. Like they're just, I can't get mad. Like, wow, this looks beautiful and fun to root for. Yeah. I can like, I, I got objectively. I can enjoy it at least. Yeah. Uh, Carolina at Miami. That's going to be an L for Carolina. Yep. And the, the tank continues for the bears. Uh, Colts at uh, Jags. Uh, Anthony Richardson. Uh, is out he has chronically kind of been injured in his first season in the nfl he's been one of these i'm gonna barrel through the line running quarterbacks but he's had a concussion and now he's got an ac joint sprain that's gonna keep him out for four to six weeks 
I don't know that they can keep playing him that way no. if he's that that fragile. Um, Garner Minshew is not a terrible backup, but I just think Trevor, look, look Trevor, Trevor Lawrence is dealing right now, so I think they I think they take care of business. Um, New Orleans at huh. Houston. I don't know what this New Orleans team is. I don't think Derek Carr is very good, but I also don't think he's that bad. And CJ Shroud is just like this Texan team is is fun. I don't know how good they are, but they're feisty and they play really well and they appear to be coached really well. So this one is a I'll have to think about it. This one's kind of a coin flip for me. Yeah, same. I have no real feel for it. I guess I would probably I would probably give it to the uh the Saints. Yeah. I might pick Houston just because it's more fun. Uh Patriots at Las Vegas. Wow. The shit show bowl. Um uh the Raiders are a bad team. New England is a worse team. Yeah. I will be watching this game because <clears throat> of that. Um, that's how I feel. I think the Raiders have more talent, and Mac yeah. Jones at this point appears to be actively just throwing the ball away <laughs> to the other team, which is why I will see if it clears waivers tomorrow, but I spent $5 to pick up the Raiders defense in my fantasy team, thinking like, Mac Jones just loves throwing that ball Yo. away. And Max Crosby on the Raiders defensive line is just it's fun to watch a big white guy be like the terrorizing pass rush because that's just it's just like rare to see that in the NFL. But he is he is a lot of fun uh, to, to watch uh, Arizona at the Rams. I don't have to make of this either. Arizona is should have been a car crash of a team, but they're feisty and like play hard and are coached well, even though they're going to lose a bunch of games. But I think the Rams get Cooper Cup back uh, this week, and that new guy they got levels higher in the in the Rams for sure. Puka, Puka, right? He's like their Puka rookie Nakua. wide receiver. Yeah. yeah, he's a fun story. Um, so I I probably go with the Rams there. Uh, Eagles at Jets. Ugh. Um, yeah, that's the Eagles don't look quite right, but they just have too much talent. Um, while they figure while they figure things out, so I th- I think they'll be fine. Uh, Lions at Tampa Bay. The Lions are rolling. I think they're yep. one of the best teams in the league, so I think they'll be fine. Uh, Giants at Bills. Poof, a Sunday night spectacular. Um, the Bills, for as many problems, they, they had a bunch of defensive injuries. Um, but yeah, I mean, their, their defense was gutted in that, in that London game. Man, Milano uh, went down. Um, they've got uh, Von Miller coming back. He was on a snap count on Sunday, but... It's, okay, I don't know how you could pick the Giants. There's nothing you could, no evidence to choose, think you should pick the Giants in this one. Uh, and then Monday night, uh, the Cowboys at the Chargers. I don't really know what to make of either of these Ooh, teams. Which team do you have less confidence in? I don't like the coaching staffs of either. In fact, what's funny here is that the offensive coordinator of the Chargers was the former offensive coordinator of the Cowboys. Um, and so there's actually like a little bit of crossover between, uh, coaching staff here. And both these teams are coached poorly. I would say other than Dallas's defense, Dan Quinn has done actually, I think a really good job on uh, there. Um, uh, the last, and he, he turned down the bears job. He didn't want like, I didn't really first want Dan your, first sign your head coach material. I, to I look didn't at a situation be like, this isn't a winner. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Let's get to a couple of questions here. You can send in questions at questions at remap radio.com. Excuse me. Howdy bears map. That's a good one. I want to follow up on your request for celebrity stories from last episode. 
had a couple strange celebrity encounters in my life. My rivalry with a master of modern horrors, my spookiest. As a child, I grew up in Massachusetts and spent my summers all around New England. I remember one summer when I was between five and seven years old, where I spent a lot of time in Maine. At, my, at a minor league baseball game, I saw Stephen King, and everyone made a comment about it. At an outdoor auction a few days later, I saw him again. Then, at a used bookstore the next week. At this point, I was pissed, and I decided I didn't like the guy. He'd done nothing to me, but I was a dedicated hater. Each time we saw, my, saw him, my mom would find us one of his movies at Blockbuster to rent that night. I would talk so much shit throughout about how bad the writing was. Years later, I was told that during the dog head scene in the 80s, It, I called King a, quote, jerk with flea balls and got sent to bed. I somehow saw King five more times this summer. Each time I would make a comment to the effect of, oh, that guy. I also started to say, quote, who cares? He can't do what I can do and would do a trick like saying hiya or a somersault. (laughs) One time... When we were both at a vending machine, he heard me talking bad about him. He was visibly confused, and my uncle heard, so I was made to apologize. He was nice about it. A few weeks later, I saw Maximum Overdrive and decided he could write a good story sometimes. Thanks for all you do, James D. Um, This story is incredible. I think the most incredible part about it might actually be the final line in it, Rob. I assume you have not seen Maximum Overdrive. Nope. Maximum Overdrive is the one time that Stephen King directed a film. Um, he was adapting one of his short stories about, uh, I forget if it's aliens. I think it's like a comet virus, something, something that infects all of the electronics in the world and brings them to life. Um, and in uh, Maximum Overdrive, it's about of people, I think with a young Kevin Bacon uh, mm-hmm. at a gas station. Uh, surrounded by these trucks that are trying to kill them. The trucks don't talk, but they're just like, beep, 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 like surrounded. <laughs> like it's, um, th- he famously uh, has admitted to being, you know, King has had, you know, various periods of addiction. And yeah. I don't mean to downplay that, but he has talked about these periods in, in his life. He doesn't really remember making this movie. Um, I was so hopped up on Coke during a lot of this production that he was, um, he's like, I'm going to make night of the living dead meets duel. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and it's an incredible film. I love maximum overdrive, but the idea that James here would write, I decided he could write a good story would not be my takeaway. Like I, I desperately need us sag after needs to figure their shit out so that I can make us watch maximum overdrive at one point, because it is, would be a is delightful movie. Who need to figure their shit out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you know what I mean? The negotiations with sag after, um, need to, need to get settled. So, you know, I can petition, uh, remap to watch maximum, uh, overdrive. There's a longstanding rumor that I don't know if it's been substantiated or not that, um, David Lynch was directing, I believe blue velvet nearby, um, and had the same producer, um, a, a longtime producer of a bunch of the Stephen King adaptations at the time, Dino De Laurentiis, I believe is his yeah. name. He did Carrie. Did a lot of stuff in the 80s. There's a yeah. good chance that a movie you liked in the 80s, your boy Dino was involved. Apparently, it's like an infamously sleazeball producer that yep. hoovered up IP uh, and made movies on him. And was a producer on uh, uh, Blue Velvet. And Hat, there's a sequence in Maximum Overdrive in which a child is riding their bike through 
a neighborhood and it is tremendous. It is scary. It is tense. It does not fit with the rest of the film. And the longstanding rumor is that Lynch came by one time to visit the set because he was a fan of Stephen King. And like, what is he doing as a movie? And be, like was basically asked to like film this scene. Um, it's like a tall well, there's tale. stories about him doing it. Like, I remember there, there was a story uh, sometime about their time in film school that they were shooting a project on like, you know, film schools are lousy with antique cameras. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they were shooting a project on a camera and David Lynch happened by and saw them shooting and was like, oh, man, I love these cameras. And like started talking to them and then was like, oh, like, here's how I would frame the shot and immediately like <laughs> solve their shot. And was like, well, good luck with your film, kids. Like, he's he's just one of those guys. He's in it for the love of the game. I I can easily imagine him being like, oh, I see what you're trying to do. Well, what if we did this and this and uh-huh. this and this? And he's directed the scene. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, wonderful, James. Thanks for for writing in. Um, last one here. Uh, an Irish listener uh, here. Uh, the Rugby Cup is currently on, and the quarterfinals are about to begin Saturday with Ireland playing a New Zealand. I believe this was. I think this is actually this coming Saturday. I think this is a, a brand new question. Um, Ireland actually have a chance at beating them and winning the World Cup as the number one ranked team in rugby. But one of the ads that are being run by Guinness is all about not jinxing it by getting too hopeful. It even had former Irish player and pundit apologizing for jinxing it last time. All right, Rob, I am going to uh, send you this, this together. Uh, yes, uh, and we'll, we'll we'll hopefully we'll see if we can get the audio embedded uh, into into the podcast. So. I need to get something off my chest that's been weighing heavily for a few years now. You see, I feel partly responsible the lads lost in 2019. I might have said on a podcast that they were going to go all the way. I totally jinxed it. All I can do is apologise and say it won't happen again. Help me spread the message around the country. You can think it, just don't jinx it. And if you do, touch wood. <laughs> Very good. The bit at the end where he lovingly holds that big man's hand. <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, anyway, they, they continue with their letter. Uh, have you ever had a sporting event or a sporting moment where you felt like you jinxed it? Apart from maybe the whole Chicago Bears situation this year. Well, it's funny. I, I, f- I feel like I'm, I'm sure I have told this story on a, on a podcast here, but it, it is never more fitting than this particular moment, which is the double doink, the famous, infamous Chicago Bears um, playoff exit from 2018, or I guess 2019 is when the, the playoff game was, was played, but the 2018 season, in which I went with my wife, my brother, and my brother-in-law, and... That game came down to a pretty routine field goal kick that would have sent the Bears uh, to the second round of the playoffs, beating the Super Bowl defending champion Eagles. Uh, And we were in the stands with uh, uh, the kick being kicked at us. We were that we were behind that part of the field. We could see directly down to the kicking line. I it was right there. And the uh, Cody Parkey. The infamous uh, Bears kicker, no longer no longer in the league, I think. Uh, he kind of bounced around after the Bears. Lines up it, all season long. He had there was one game against the Lions where he hit the uprights four times in a row, uh, or like four times in a game, which statistically should just be impossible. Like if you were trying to do it, you couldn't do it. And he was just like his foot was like magnetized to producing an arc that would hit the the uprights. 
And so it was always a kicking is kind of automatic in the NFL on unless you're past like 45 yards and like, especially if you're past 50 yards, but like beyond that kickers are hitting it like, you know, 95% of the time. And this was not Cody Parkey. It was, he was missing it. Like it was a coin flip 50, 50, whether that thing's going through on just routine kicks. And so he lines up, kicks it. And then the Eagles do a tactic that is happens less and less because I think, analytics has proven it doesn't really do anything but it's called icing the kicker which is where you just make them do it a second time i believe what the analytics have shown is that they're more likely to miss it the first time than they are the second time because you're giving them a chance to like sit with the conditions line like work out like it's a practice shot and these are guys that are just doing the same thing over and over again so you don't see it as much anymore but because he was such a streaky kicker like fuck like uh, like i wish we could have just had that kick back and everyone in the crowd that we're in is just like so anxious and my brother and i have it on video somewhere is like oh like he's not that bad like he'll put it through a second time and then not a minute later he lines up and doinks it double doinks it in fact and so i was not responsible for this particular jinx but my brother was. And when he said he said it loud, he wouldn't say it to me. He was like the whole crowd was linking arms. We were like rowing back and forth. Everyone's drunk out of their mind. And my brother says that. And like people audibly like, don't say that. Don't say things like that. You know how he kicks. And then kicked it through and or not kicked it through. That was the that was the problem. He did not kick it through. So I, I feel like I was a part of a of a jinx. Um and they contributed to a, a jinxing situation. It was upsetting. Yeah, I'm trying to think here. So I think for me, the problem, and this is something that comes from Chicago sports. You always feel like the team's just jinxed. Yeah. Like, it's not What like else is an explanation? How can we be this bad for so long? So there's no, there's no moments where it's like, oh, uh, we, you know, so what he's talking about is like, you be, you can jinx it by being overconfident. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you, you hear commentator, the commentators curse. They joke about like the moment you observe that somebody has played like 12 games without throwing an interception, you've pretty much guaranteed they're going to throw an interception in this game. We're no hitter, uh, right? We're like that kind of yeah. balance, like balancing act towards to get the end of a game where if no one acknowledged that a no hitter was happening, you're more likely to get the no hitter. Chicago sports, it's just the opposite, where everyone fully expects this to just, like, go bad in the most excruciating way possible. And so it's like, it does feel like the team is jinxed, but it's also one of those moments where it never feels like anyone jinxed it in the way of, like, being too confident in a good outcome. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think that's also going to take us to the... The end of the podcast. You can write in with uh, more questions. Do questions at remapradio.com. Just slap the subject line sports on top of that. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, Blue Sky, Mastodon, your socials of choice. We are, we are there. The one little sort of quirk is that on YouTube, it's got to be at remapradio.com because of the way YouTube is handling handles these days. Uh, the only reason this podcast exists, the only reason any of these podcasts exist is because uh, of all of you fine folks supporting us over at remapradio.com. Uh, you can also listen to this and many other podcasts, uh, either ad-free or exclusive over at the foundation tier, which we are adding to all the time. Uh, and you can get access to that and more, again, 
over at remapradio.com. Uh, Rob, uh, I think that's it uh, for us. We'll, we'll return back in the newest... Do you have any predictions on uh, what's what's the newest depressing thing that's going to happen to the Bears before before you and I revisit this topic? Oh yeah, at this at this rate, uh, I mean it's football. I'm probably probably do an injury uh, that would like <laughs> oh, take Fields or more out for like critical phase of the season. Fuck! Oh, you just jinxed it. God damn it! Fuck capitalism. Bear down. <laughs> <laughs>